All right. Thank you for your good attention this weekend. Um, let me bring your attention to just a couple of things that might be of help to you. Okay, so um, on the screen, um, this, when you go to faithlafayette.org slash heart, it'll take you to these, these videos, Heart of Change videos. Brent looks really young, too. Yeah, if you see me right there, I look really young. And um, that, was four, that was about 14 years ago when I did those videos. And you can see me in this, in this picture right here. This is the second video. I'm drawing some of the heart stuff. So those diagrams, this is a full-blown um, um, exposition of the heart. And you click on this link right here that says download Heart of Change Diagrams. You can click on that and get those diagrams there that I started drawing today. But th- those aren't what I showed you today was just uh, the tip of the iceberg. But those videos are free there. But again, I use them on a regular basis in counseling and just helping um, individuals understand that the root of their behavior is in their hearts. Um, And this right here forms the basis of my biblical counseling as well. People come to us and they don't understand what's going on in their marriages or in their life or whatever. Ultimately, life is all about a worship issue. It it is a worship issue. if I'm loving something other than God, I'm worshiping that, okay? And the lady here said it was idolatry. First commandment is have no other gods before me. The first is a, the first for a reason. Um, all of life is about um, worship, okay? So when people come in for counseling, and at Faith Church, we call it biblical counseling, we begin to unpack their problems, and ultimately we have to get to the hard issue. So every year we do have something called a Biblical Counseling Training Conference. There are brochures. If you are interested in the Biblical Counseling Training Conference, there are brochures right back on the, on the table there. The next conference is February 7th through 12th, 2021. It has all kinds of different tracks, a basic track up to six tracks. And there's a, um, a, a ladies track as well if you want to just emphasis on ladies' issues. And um, it's an all-new ladies' track. We have the same ladies' track for the past couple of years. So if you've been to the ladies' track before next year, it'll be all brand new. And again, we would love to have you out to that. Um, I believe a lot. How many, how many of you have been to the Biblical Counseling Training Conference? Raise your hand. Okay, so you can talk to those hands if you want to um, have a little bit more information about that. I am not only a pastor at Faith Church, I'm also the president of our seminary there, our seminary is, a, is not a big seminary, but it has 200 people in it. Um, 150 of those, 50, 155, 60 of those are in what we call the Master of Arts in Biblical Counseling, um, which is a 36-credit-hour um, program. It is not a licensed program, meaning it doesn't count for state licensure. Um, so, uh, but it gives you extra training, focused training on using the scriptures to help people. In the Master of Arts in Biblical Counseling, 36-credit-hour program, 12 classes. Each one of those classes are three-credit hours, and you can do most of it online. There will be a couple of modular classes where you'll have to come to Lafayette to do that. So for a week, for a week, not for, that's what I mean by a modular class. Come to Lafayette for a week. Um, there's like five of those classes, so over the course of your time, you would take that um, your Master of Arts in Biblical Counseling, you'd have to be in Lafayette for five weeks. It's not. It's accredited, though. It's not well, for licensure, but... It is not accredited. I'm sorry, it is not licensed, but um, we are a seminary that is now accredited. So if you're interested in the Master of Arts in Biblical Counseling, 
There's a brochure back there, and if you want us to contact you, you can put your name on a little sign-up back there. Um, the reason Faith Bible Seminary started was started was not primarily for the counseling. That was a nice add-on since we did counseling, but we started the seminary to train men for ministry. Um, seminary models, ultimately, right now, the traditional seminary model produces men who are in huge amount of debt because of the amounts of the cost that it has. In order to try to get out of the debts or not have as much men in ministry work full-time during seminary and they try to go to school full-time. So that is not a great combination for their families. And um, so they're, when they graduate, their families are struggling, they're in full-time, they're in a lot of debt, and they haven't had a lot of ministry experience because they've been working full-time outside of ministry. Faith Church reinvented the seminary model where we actually pay you, a, um, if you're an intern in a church, um, you are getting paid, and the seminary total cost for three years for your tuition, okay? Here's the total cost at this moment in time for three years. It is $4,500 for an MDiv degree. Okay, $4,500. Most MDiv degrees are probably in the range of $50,000. And the reason why we're able to do it so low is because we're, the seminary is wedded to a church and um, we're requiring that you be in full-time ministry or an intern at a local church. And if you have a young man in your church that wants to go to seminary, you provide him with a living stipend, so you pay him something. He works for you 25 hours a week, and then he goes to school 25 hours a week. And um, it doesn't matter if he's in Lafayette or here. We can do it online through video technology. Um, so if you're interested in a Master of Divinity degree, there's a brochure on that back there at the table as well. And you can uh, fill that if you, if you want me to contact you. Put your name on that. Um, also, one more ministry we have, we, call it a, we have a men's residential program called Restoration for men with life-dominating sins. If you're struggling and you're just caught up in addictions or something, we have a working farm, so to speak, and the men go there for counseling and they're required to work in, as well as on the farm and in, in particular ways to have meaningful, productive lives. So if you have men who are in your church and you say, man, I don't... You know, counseling or discipling is more just than one not, hour once a week. Yeah, counseling and discipling are just not um, doing it one one hour, one time per week. We need a live-in residential program that is strictly biblical um, restoration. There's a brochure back there on the table for that, and Janet will talk about a few others. Just we also have one for women called Vision of Hope. Um, which is a residential facility for women that are battling a variety of issues. A lot of times it's self-harm or it's addictions. It's coming out of trauma and abuse. Um, sinful life patterns that, again, they need more than one hour once a week. So there's a brochure on that, and I know that there are actually openings there um, right now, but it's an, it's an amazing program. The other part of it that's unique that I like to let churches know, um, my daughter's actually going to participate in this piece of it this summer, there's a Vision of Hope internship, which is a year long, um, and they provide you with housing and uh, room and board, and then you work for about 30 hours a week there. So you come out of there, um, you're not the counselor, but you get to watch how the Word of God is changing lives. You get to understand how that happens. A lot of people are doing that as their gap year <coughs> between high school and college, or they graduate from college and they want to 
this is the, a season of life where if they're not working yet in their main field, they can do this. And my daughter's doing it for the summer as she's in college and they also allow you to do it for the summer. Um, but that's, if you're interested in an internship there, there's information on that and I'd be happy to talk to you more about any of those opportunities. It's just an amazing opportunity that I like to let people know about. All right. Now, one of the things that I had done earlier is said, Janet, come up here and talk about trauma a bit, and then we, didn't, we ran out of time. So let me get us back to where we were at that moment in time for just a moment. Um, so I ask you the question, why do we do what we do? And you say, we want what we want. Always, always, always. You say, Brent, um, that may be a little too simplistic. I'm not sure that it is. James says it. Okay, so... Um, but then you have those who have been incredibly traumatized. And Brent, are you still able to say that we do what we do because we want what we want? Um, that doesn't that sound a bit harsh? Um, well, well, let's just see and let's hear a little bit what is happening to those who have been victimized and abused in their past. And this this is the dynamic that goes on. It's perfectly understandable. But here is the dynamic that goes on. So, Janet, if you can help us understand a little bit of that. Um, and I appreciate Brent saying that. Yeah, it can sound very harsh um, and simplistic. Working it out is not simple at all. Yeah. But the bottom line is that's true. But if you've been abused, what do you want? Protection. And so you behave in that way. So do I understand it? Yes. But again, you're doing what you do because you want what you want. And so then how do we help somebody like that? What is someone with a very wounded past typically like? And, and this is going to sound harsh when I say it, but then I'm going to walk you through a good friend of mine that um, has had trauma that um, is literally worse than a horror movie. That it, it is unbelievable enough to the point where I know Brent for a while would get online and look up news articles to make sure it was true. Because you're like, no way. And it's true. So someone that lived that and, and what was going to be most helpful to her People who have a very wounded past, and to one degree or another isn't that us, um, usually present even more selfishness. And that sounds harsh, but that's the reality. So then the question is, how do you help somebody like that? Well, the world would say, it's not their fault, and that certainly is true. Let, let me just say, that is true. That what happened to them is not their fault. What they need is more self-esteem. What they need is um, healing yeah, and where's going to be the hope in that ultimately? What's really happening is if we all agree that our hearts are sinful and desperately wicked, my dear friend's heart was sinful and desperately wicked before she was abused. She is not responsible for any of the abuse, and it's horrific. And I have a very difficult time praying for some of the people involved in it. It's horrible. But she came out of the womb already a sinner. So her abuse ratcheted up almost an overwhelming selfishness. She can't think about anybody but herself. Like, she has to survive. And we talked about that. The survival skills were great. And what did that lead her to? A whole lot of incredibly selfish, self-protective things. Um, and as we talked, at one point she even said to me, we were reading through a book, which if you're dealing with someone who's been abused, there are some excellent resources out there. We were reading Rid of My Disgrace. And um, in there, he talks about the fact that one of the sinful responses, not sin that she did it, a sinful response can be, based on my suffering, I'm entitled now. I'm entitled to no more suffering. I'm entitled for you to understand. I'm entitled for you to always be thinking about me and what happened to me. And she, as she read that, she said, that's me. And it was. I love her. Do I get it? 
yes, do I need to sit in judgment of that? We've already talked about the fact that there's no room for judgment anyway. But am I going to be a safe place for her to acknowledge that? Because her hope is not in staying a victim. The hope is not, it wasn't your fault, and this is the way it is, and you're damaged, and I'm really sorry. Her hope is, did you know that your God is so big that he's refining you through this? You could look more like Jesus and shine more bright because you've responded to unjust suffering in a way that honors the Lord. You can shine in a way that others can't as you deal with your sinful responses to it, which can be a variety of things. Sometimes in her case, it was determining those things didn't happen to her, they happened to somebody else. Um, And honestly, totally understand that. So now how do we deal with reality? We're going to have to not let you live in that level of self-protection either. We have to deal with that. We got to say that that's true. And now it's not, I need greater self-esteem. Her self-centered heart was amplified through the people who should have loved her and protected her not doing that and instead trafficking her. So we have to deal with all of that. Um, But the response of your woundedness is a bigger deal than your self-centeredness is hopeless. What do you do with that then? You're stuck. But when you choose to believe the Lord that your self-centeredness is more significant than your woundedness, there's all kinds of answers. Oh, I know the answers for that. There's so much hope for that. And it has been years. Simplistic? Sure. I didn't just say those things. And she went, oh, my word. Thank you. Um, We're talking seven years now, eight years now. Um, and I've been texting with her. She's got some difficult decisions to make, and I told her, I said, I am so thankful you're thinking about these things biblically. What would be the right thing to do, given what's happened in the past? What is wise? What should I do? She is um, redeeming what's happened to her and spoke with me at the BCTC last year on how to deal with trauma, but that didn't come from focusing just on her woundedness. Deal with the suffering before you deal with the sin. Acknowledge the suffering and that that was not her fault in any way. But as a result of the suffering, what is the sin that came out? And as we deal with the sin, there is redemption for the suffering. Um, So it's true even in that. It's not like if they're wounded, you can't talk about their sin. You must. That's where the hope is. But we need to obviously do that very compassionately. And there's a lot more we could say, and there's a lot of good resources. If you want to talk more about that later, I can. Um. Questions on that for Janet? And here's, what, here's why I want to mention that. Some of you may be, you be in marriages and your spouse is not vulnerable because of the trauma in the past. Okay, so is this diagram, I do what I do because I want what I want, still true? Yes, suffering, suffering in the past has exacerbated that. Um, and there may be reasons why your spouse is you know, not naked and, naked and not ashamed. Um, because that that disgrace that past is still there, so that's why I wanted her to mention that. But questions for Janet on any of that? Okay. Okay. Um, let me mention something else here. Um, I ended our testimony with romance, gifts, and getaways come after building on a foundation of what we've been talking about in my life for yours. Marriages are not built upon romance, but on seeking to do the choreography of heaven, my life for yours. Um, Loving your spouse in the way that we have talked about creates a very safe place for our sin to be exposed, truly have a naked and not ashamed kind of a marriage, and then locking arms together and pointing each other toward Christ. 
I would say feelings of affection follow the intentional choice to love. Um, in the act, I have not developed this for you. You can see on the, in the videos, if you go to those, that um, why I would say some of this. But um, when I am living for myself and my pleasures in my hearts, and I'm in my behavior, which is unrighteous because I'm trying to get the things that I'm living for that are not God, if for some reason I don't get them, I end up being distressed, anxious, despairing, I feel guilty, and I'm angry. Like that night with my wife, you would describe me in those, those states when I was not getting what I wanted in, the, um, in, my, um, in my bacon bacon apocalypse there. So um, we feel what we feel because we do what we do. And you know the answer, what goes before that. I do what I do because I, I want what I want. So our emotional state follows our behavior, which follows our heart's worship patterns. Most Nobody has ever come to me and said, Brent, um, in marriage, when they come to me for marriage problems, that none of them come to me and say, Brent, um, hey, will you help me to expose my worship problems? Nobody has ever done that. They come to me saying, I feel bad. I, uh, I'm regularly angry. I'm rarely, I'm regularly anxious. And we're not just feeling like we love one another anymore. When they say that, we'd how about this? We have fallen out of love. What that means, I don't feel like I felt initially, and so they're feeling all of this mess, and if I'm reading them carefully, then their emotions, I'm going to say this very, very precisely, our emotional state are windows into our worship, Okay? So if a person says they've fallen out of love, they've lost that loving feeling. What they're saying is they stopped loving a long time ago. And therefore, they don't have any loving feelings anymore. Because when I ultimately am delighting in God and my behavior is righteous, what God says will come about is joy, peace, blessedness, and satisfaction. These are the feelings that I follow joy, peace, blessedness, and satisfaction. And some people might equate that with love, loving feelings. But the feelings, the emotional state, are a byproduct of my righteous and loving behavior, which is a byproduct of worship. Think with me for just a moment. Um, what happens after a couple, you know, for years, a man and his wife have been married. They have raised kids together. And then when the kids leave the home, suddenly the husband and wife end up getting a divorce. What has happened during that time? What has happened during that time? So how is that explicable? So the husband wake up one morning the husband and wife wake up and the kids are no longer in the home and they say, man, I don't know you anymore. And um, they end up getting a divorce after all those years. What is the dynamic going on there? What's the dynamic? Thoughts? What do you think is some of the dynamic? Yes. Yeah, for the last 20 years, where has been their investments? 
and the children. Okay? Where your treasure is, there is your hearts. And then you wake up and you recognize this person who I'm living with the last 20 years. I haven't been investing in my one flesh relationship. So we're just two strangers living under the, as roommates, not one flesh. Okay, so that's one dynamic. Feelings and affection... Feelings of affection follow the intentional choice to love and action. Um, let me give this as an example, even in a parent and a child. The more you invest in your child, this is not an exclusion to what I was just saying, but moms in particular have such an affection for their children. You know, I see the way that my lovely wife and my children relate, and it's, it's an amazing thing. And the reason why my wife's heart is so affectionate for my, ch my children is because of the amount of her investment in them. I'm thinking of a parent recently. Um, so there's a couple in our church, and I won't mention their names, but their child um, grew up, he was constantly in a, um, using drugs, and in the criminal system. Okay, now they were a godly couple. So just because you push all the right buttons as a parent and you try to do all the right things doesn't mean that your children will accept Christ. But I saw how these, these, this mom and dad tried and invested in their child. Over the course of the, the years, and the child was in and out of prison, and um, the child eventually committed suicide. And, and so this child, I'm going to say it relatively crassly, had no social redeeming value in this child. He was constantly in and out of prison and doing drugs. But the parents to this day, they're, they're not divorced, so they didn't, throw, they didn't throw all of their investment into this child. They kept the one flesh relationship, the priority through it. But over the years, they invested and they invested and they invested. And I see, even in a... In a, in a child that has no social redeeming value, the affection of the parents, and to this day, the hurt of losing that child, I still see the sorrow in their face. So the feelings of affection come after all of the loving investment over time. Janet, what would you add to that? I think that's incredibly important because what it shows us is whether or not we think we're being biblical. That is a, a more clear picture of loving biblically. When I loved my children, it wasn't, I mean, they didn't really do anything back for me for like a really long time. They really didn't care about my needs at the moment. And you could feed me a little later, mom. I know you're tired. Like that never came up. So, but in that one way investment, my heart was there. And if you think about that, as I talk to wives who are saying, but my husband is so hard to love, you're not investing there. I didn't say he's easy to love. Our kids are not always easy to love. And this particular child was not in any way easy to love. <coughs> but because they kept investing there, their heart was there. But with our spouses, we tend to think, I should only do that if they're doing it. With our children, we actually, if we're doing it right, not perfectly, the, the focus is, can be a little more biblical. It's one way. I'm going to love you no matter what you do. I remember telling my children that when they were little. We had this long conversation when they were real little about why I loved them. And I would ask them, and they'd try to come up with all these reasons because we're so good. And I'm like, do you remember yesterday? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
then they would explain to me all the reasons I should love them, and I would explain why those were not true. It's because we're cute. Honey, you know, that behavior, that's like ugly. When you do that, there's nothing cute about that. And ultimately, they're totally like, I don't know why you love us. And I said, well, let me ask you this. What do you think you'd have to do to lose it? And then we had that conversation where my son finally said, if I murdered somebody. <laughs> and I said, oh, son, if you did, you'd go straight to jail. And I would call the police because that's wicked and that's wrong. And then I'd come visit you every day because I love you. Why do I love you? Just because you're mine. I understand that. Okay, this is now my flesh. Why do I love you? Because you're nice to me. Because you appreciate me. Or why do I love you? Just because God gave you to me. And when we can learn to invest in each other the way we, in some way, instinctually learn with our kids, um, I think it would change things. All right, now, as we, um, you know, if we were able to get a taste of Eden in our lives, like the testimony that Janet and I gave, and we're understanding the patterns of our hearts, notice how the last, before the fall, the last picture of Eden was portrayed. So, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Obviously, that is more than some kind of a spiritual one flesh. The two bodies would come together, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So, that has something to do with also the, man, the woman who came out of man. Now, the man goes back into the woman sexually. If we were, if we were able to achieve something like a taste of Eden, would there be any problems with sexual intimacy? So, so I didn't talk about sex at all up to this point. So if you had something like naked and not ashamed, I could be fully exposed in front of you, and I don't have to be scared, and we're helping one another, what would that do for your sexual intimacy? Tell me that. Now the time for you to talk. Let's talk about it. Let's just talk. <laughs> what would that do for you? And you were actually living my life for you. Okay. Nobody wants to be the first about to talk about sex, do they? But we got a thumbs up. We got it. It's the ultimate freedom. Okay, ultimate freedom. Okay, what else would that do for you? I, there's some older folks in here. I know you've been practicing sex God's way for a long time in your marriage. So, tell me about yes. Did I see a hand somewhere? Okay. <laughs> what would that do for you? Yes. Yeah, it would, make, it would make sexual intimacy about giving, not just receiving. I'll tell you a little story. So, so I, went to the, I told you about the biblical counseling training conference. I went to that thing, or I went to the training, I don't know, 20, 26, probably 27 years ago. So one, probably one year before I was married. And there was a man by the name of Doc Smith who taught on biblical principles of sex. And um, so 26 years ago, what was I, like 24 years old, somewhere in that range. Um, and um, Doc Smith said this, your body, your sexuality, your genitals are given by God, um, yes, to, to make children, but also to give your wife pleasure um, or your spouse pleasure. And he was talking to the guys and he said, you know, you're supposed to get excited in order to give pleasure. And I'm 24 years old. You're, you're supposed to get excited in order to give pleasure? I did not believe that 70-year-old man at all. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's been so long since you've had sex that you, you're saying that? You've got to be kidding me. You know, Doc Smith, at 70 years old, wrote a book on sex. 
I haven't written a book on sex yet. And um, but what I've recognized after 26 years of marriage is he was exactly right. Um, 24, you know, from when I realized I had genitals and that they felt good to when I got married and learned these principles, I thought sex was all about me getting pleasure. And that cultivates a, um, a, prince, a hellish principle in your life. Sex is all about me. And um, that man was the first time when he was expounding scriptures to me, said sex is for giving your wife pleasure. And after 26 years of marriage, I believe him. And Janet and I, um, Janet and I have, um, you know, we're, again, we're not perfect in any ways, but um, we enjoy our intimacy with one another. And, um, well, I see you're getting up your microphone. You probably want to say something. Go ahead. I'm not disagreeing. Go ahead. Well, th- this, <laughs> is the, this is the perfect time for, because I was about to say something that reminded me of what I did in the college class one time. So, uh, um, I was saying something like this, intimacy in marriage is great, and I was going to turn to my wife and say, isn't that right, honey? That's probably not the best thing to do, well, honey. But he did that in the college and, class. Isn't that right, uh, Janet? Sex and marriage is great. Janet, what you. do you think? Um, <laughs> you know, I wasn't trying to put it on the spot, but um, <laughs> my, and here's what I began to get known for in the college ministry. I was the sex pastor because I was talking about it a lot. And um, in 2007, when Facebook was only, when it was only among the college students, um, and before they opened it up to the rest of us um, living beings, but they, um, there was a group. Um, so, so in 2007, I got onto Facebook when they opened it up to, to us, and I typed in my name, and then I saw a, a group dedicated to Pastor Brent Oakland, and here's what the group said. Sex in marriage is great. Just ask my wife. A Facebook group dedicated to Brent Oakland. <laughs> and the reason why, they, but here was my principle. Here was my heart behind that. Um, I was talking to our college kids often about this. Now, I'm going to tell you a different, so let me ask you. How often do our children hear about a different way other than God's way of sex and marriage? Tell me how often. It's 24-7. Okay, now here's the next question. How much do you talk about it? How much do you talk about it? Um, Who said that? More than your kids like to hear. I have never heard that answer before. But that's why I got the face group dedicated to me. Because I talked about it quite a bit. What I didn't talk about with you guys is how do you begin ultimately to change your desires. And, And there's a logical explanation to that. But I'm trying to present to our children, to my children, and to the college kids, the beauty of God's ways of sex and marriage. Now, now let me, I'll give you a quick, a quick um, reason for how will you begin to cultivate an affection for Christ rather than bacon? Okay, so let me just ask you that. Okay, so logically figure this out. How do you begin to want Christ more than you want bacon? 
So use me as the horrible example here. How do you want to, to desire Christ more than you want bacon? What do you have to see? What do you have to see? What? How my love for bacon affects me. How it rips me up inside. How it destroys relationships. You didn't know bacon was that powerful, did you? <laughs> but more how my life for me destroys me. But how do I begin to see that Christ is better than bacon? How do I begin to see that? Well, I begin to see what all Christ has done. Christ has loved me. Bacon did not. Christ gave his life for me. Bacon, well, bacon did give its life, but... Um, not voluntarily. It, it, was, it was not voluntarily, right? So I see that... Jesus is better than bacon, and therefore, what do I want? What do I want if I see that Jesus is better than bacon? And there's a reason why I told you about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus naked on the cross, because his love for you, he gave you his clothing of righteousness when he was taking the shame of your humiliation, your nakedness. Now, what has to happen with our children? Um, they are out there seeing the bacon of other ways of sex outside of marriage. And outside of this man, what is our church doing with the topic of sex? Maybe even your own families. Very little. Okay, so I have, I have um, done over 50 weddings in the college ministry. And therefore, I have done 50 cases of pre-marriage counseling. And at the end, I always talk about sex. And I ask them this question, how much did your parents talk to you about this? And they normally say something like, oh, probably, if they say anything, they'll say, well, maybe one time, and it was totally awkward. I never wanted to talk to them about it again. <laughs> What's happening with that? Tell me what is that mindset. Tell me what that mindset is about sex. Tell me, tell me. Okay. It's dirty and it's shameful. That is not Garden of Eden. Okay? And the reason why, I, the reason why I think that churches and families don't talk about it is, is because, number one, you're not, you as a couple are not naked and not ashamed. You're living in, not in the Garden of Eden, a taste of Eden. You're not practicing sex God's way. You're not cultivating one flesh like we've been talking about, a safe place for your sin to be exposed. You're not doing that, and then you're not taking to the next level of if you're really one flesh in spiritual and emotional ways, oh my goodness, that naturally goes into the sexual, physical relationship in beautiful ways. In beautiful ways. So you're not doing it now, therefore you're ashamed of it. You're guilty of it. Or number two, you have past issues. Or current issues, porn or whatever it may be. Past issues that have not been resolved that keep you in that shame. Therefore, you cannot be naked and unashamed before your wife, before your spouse. And therefore, how on earth can you talk about it? Okay. So we, 
God has been gracious to us, and one of the, you know, we've talked to our children quite a bit about this growing up. Let me show you what we do, okay? Or let me show you what we did, and let me show you. So let me set up this, and then I'll give you time for Q&A. Janet, you want to say something? <laughs> I see when the microphone goes off. <laughs> he knows me well. This is my moment. Okay. Oh, I think, oh, oh, that's back on. Okay. Um, no, it, what he's saying is right. I was not, neither of us were raised in homes where we talked about it. Um, I was given a book at some point um, and had a lot of wrong views of that area. And, that, and that's, here's the beauty. Wherever you are, it isn't too late and you can break the cycle. Amen. And that's when we started, he's going to go through a Bible study we did. I would not have gone the direction he did and was trying to hide my mortification as he was doing it. But getting used to being able to talk about those things, it's never too late to start that. If, and the beauty of that is to know that at this point, when our, husband, when our son is engaged, we talk about it. Not in crass ways, but we talk about, you know, and that his bride-to-be wants us to do their counseling and talk about that area because she said, I've heard your mom talk about it. And she makes it not awkward. Oh, I'll just keep talking. Very, very and she good. makes it not awkward. So we can talk about it. Wherever you are, you can, you can make it better. Maybe the battery on yeah, that. Yeah, probably. All right, let's do this. Let's see. Let's, let's assume that your four-year-old says, Daddy, who is God? Okay, so that's your four-year-old. And he comes to you and says, Daddy, who is God? Okay, that's a great question, right? And you've got a captive audience with your four-year-old. Like, what is he going to do? Is he going to drive off somewhere if you want to start talking about God? No. So your four-year-old says, who is God? And you, being the spiritual daddy that you are, say, man, it's time for family devotions. So we're going to start family devotions at four years old. Where would you go to if you went to talk of, if you wanted to answer the question about who is God? What book of the Bible begins to answer that question greatly? I heard Genesis. John. Well, do you know that they start similarly? In the beginning, one says it was the word, and the other one says in the beginning was God. So let's go with the first one. First, it was first for a reason. Let's go with Genesis. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you are a spiritual father, father of the year award. You are. And so you're starting with Genesis. It'll be a very safe night. No controversy in Genesis chapter 1. You're talking to your four-year-old, and you get to Genesis 1, 27. God created man in his image, and in the image of God, he created them male and female. And he said, be blessed and multiply. Daddy, what does it mean to multiply? And you say, and you're caught off guard. I thought this was going to be an easy chapter. He's four years old. And you say, son, you wouldn't understand. We'll talk about that when you're 35. Tell me, what did you just do? And I'm making it humorous, but there's something sadly serious about this. What did you just do? You wrapped it in shame. You wrapped it in shame. And here's what's coming in. The world with their 24-7 is telling them something that it is shameful, but they don't present it as shameful, and they will get a different view, and you won't talk about it. But you, undaunted father of the year, Say, man, I escaped Genesis chapter 1 with very minimal damage to me. So Genesis chapter 2 will be a lot easier tomorrow night's family devotions. And you get to Genesis 2, 24. 
They were naked and not ashamed. They, they left their father and mother and cleaved to each other. They became one flesh and they were naked and not ashamed. Daddy, what does it mean to be one flesh? And you said, it has something to do with a stork, honey. You would not understand. <laughs> and then you say, I'm done with the Bible. I'm done with family devotions. It's too hard for me, man. <laughs> This, I say this, this happened to us, okay? So we started in Genesis and Joshua, and I don't remember exactly, but four years old. Some what you remember exactly? Oh, I will never forget, yes. <laughs> oh, because I had a plan. I'm going to go through Genesis using curriculum because I'm not a pastor, and I'm homeschooling, so I've got this curriculum, and we cut off this branch. We're going to show that it died the minute it sinned, and, but we'll see the effects over time. I have this cool thing I'm going to do, but Brent's like, Actually, do it at night when I'm home. I'm going to lead it, and I don't want curriculum. So he starts through Genesis. And where, what I remember is when we get to chapter 3, and it says the seed of the woman. Uh, yeah. And Brent looks at the kids, and he goes, and that's miraculous because women don't have seeds. Men do. And I'm like, why are we talking about this right now? <laughs> like, we so did not need to go there with my kindergarten and first grader. And they're like, really? But everybody's fine but me having the conversation. So, you know, you learn as a mom the face of don't look shocked right now. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I liked my illustration. But, but and I'm like, oh, what are they going to ask? What are they going to ask? And he said, normally, the man puts a seed in the woman, and that brings life. In this case, the woman was going to have the seed without man. It's already miraculous. And they just went, cool. And then every time it came up in Scripture, he would just talk about whatever's there to where they were very comfortable talking about that. But that did not come from me. I don't even know how it came from you because you weren't raised that way, but I was very grateful for it. That was the first time we talked about it. Yeah, and so in, in Genesis 1, so a conversation like that in a tasteful way. So Joshua and Karis is our children's name. So when they were young, they actually, when they were young, wanted to marry each other. How cute was that? <laughs> but we had to explain to them, no, you couldn't do that. But <laughs> Joshua and Karis... When you take tubbies, and they were naked and not ashamed when they're like four and five years old, when you take tubbies, you recognize that you're different. You're boy, you're girl. Yes, Daddy, we see that. <laughs> um, I know that that's hard to fathom these days in America, but there was your boy, your girl, and in marriage, those parts come together. And so I was teaching them at an early age, and I said, in marriage, you remember we talked about the Garden of Eden? What does Eden mean? What does Eden mean? And when those parts come together, it's so delightful, and out of that comes life. And that's where you came from, and you came from Karis. And so when Mommy and Daddy are building one flesh relationships together, and we're married only in marriage, and someday, if the Lord wills, you will have a, um, a spouse as well. And your physical body parts will come together, which is a symbol, ultimately, of the beautiful picture of, of how we're weaving everything, two people, to become one. And that is a beautiful thing. And what I'm doing at that moment in time is I'm building in their heads the categories for handling the beautiful picture of sex and marriage, the Garden of Eden delight, because I know what's happening. I know what will fill their heads in the world will be the opposite of that 24-7. Can I add because yeah, that's something else you did with that? Here's the other thing that that did. From the beginning, being able to say to them, and those parts of your body are for your spouse, not for you. 
and they're so not from, for anybody else and not anybody else certainly for protection certainly. So, against predators absolutely but to know from the beginning with a world that is all about can we just talk about it masturbation is just like very common and it's normal for them from before it's even an issue this is not for your pleasure this is a gift from god to give this is not yours this is not yet and i can remember my son at some point saying because we would have those conversations sometimes privately but then you know they talk about everything and i'd hear him tell karis you know my privates are not a toy to be played with <laughs> and i'm like true <coughs> so we don't need to play with it because it's not mine and th that's for my wife someday that's for my wife yes and what a gift that is to him later so that when he hears out in the world get all the pleasure you can it was conflicting with something he already knew and it was that doesn't even make sense that's not what that's for that's for somebody else. That's not for me. But if we haven't started it that way, that's the only message they hear, and it makes sense because it feels good. Yeah. And um, how, how soon does the world start giving that message to your children? So how soon? Kindergarten, first grade. Kindergarten, first grade. Or if, if it's in preschool, if they go out before. So um, you say, no. Nah. Well, if they're getting it in preschool and kindergarten, and you're not talking about it, guess what they're getting? I mean, they're getting the world's version. And they're it, not going to talk to you if you were and uncomfortable. they're not talking to you if you said, oh, we're not talking about that. Do you get it? And you say, Brent, you're, you're just over the top. Uh, I could never do this. Well, I'm telling you. So my, Joshua, Joshua, we sent him to Faith Christian School. Faith, what was the second word? Christian School, which is a school at our church in kindergarten and one day he came home just in tears and uh, like uncontrollable and when we finally calmed him down a bit we asked him to why on earth are you crying and um he said there there's this girl in at faith what was the second word again faith what <laughs> christian school and she she asked me to be her boyfriend Horror above horrors, you know. And my point is they're, they're talking about this. And, and, um, and then well, I said, well, Joshua, why does that disturb you so bad? And um, you have to recognize two things. Number one, my son is my offspring. He's a worrier. Number two, he's also seen me do all kinds of weddings. And here's what he said. Daddy, I don't know how to plan a wedding. <laughs> I'm not ready to be a husband. So he was crying, but not for the right reasons. <laughs> so I got to set him down, and I said, you know, we've talked about husband and wife, and um, I said, Joshua, are you ready to be a husband right now? And he said, no, Daddy. I said, are you ready to work 40 hours a week? And he said, no, Daddy. I said, are you ready to have children? He said, Daddy, I am a child. So, <laughs> uh, so he gets my point, and I said, okay, well, you tell that little girl. I don't have to single you out until I'm ready to be a husband. And so two weeks later at Faith, oh, I forgot. What was it again, Faith what? <laughs> Christian school. Another little girl asked him the same thing. And he said, I don't have to be, I don't have to single you out. I can be friends with all the girls until I'm ready to be a husband. So that's what he did. That's so they found did. other boyfriends just to show him. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so that made my heart great, uh, glad. And I'm, you know, now my son has found somebody, and um, it's the only one he's ever dated. They're getting married in, in July, and it was just two nights ago. We were having conversations. It was about sex, 
Surprised even me. Surprised even me about that. And he's really ready to talk about it. And he, he, he's ready to talk <laughs> about it. <laughs> um, so, the, the, so here's my point. We got hang-ups on sucks because we're not living out the one flesh relationship. We're not building the taste of Eden. And for some reason, um, the, the, we are ashamed. And so we're not getting to that naked and unashamed part when we're not dealing with our past. If you got a past, if you're struggling, talk to your pastors. If your pastors don't need, if your pastors are not quite equipped yet, then send them the faith biblical counseling. Um, and we'll, we can get you help on those things. We can get you help. Go ahead, Janet. Some resources that I just finished doing a three-week class with women called Intimate Issues because of this. And we don't know how to talk about it, and a lot of times um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, so some resources that have been helpful to me, there is a book called When Two Become One uh, by uh, McCluskey. And that, it's got a couple of things in there I wouldn't agree with. It's not the Bible. He talks about group therapy. I can think of no worse topic that I would want group therapy on than that. And then he does, there's one chapter where it sounds a little Freudish, which really surprised me because he's, it is biblical. So there's some things, it's not, it's not the Bible. But what he does do is present theologically why sex is a big deal. And it's not a big deal for the reasons the world says. It's actually a bigger deal than the world says because it's all about the oneness. It's not about technique. It's all about the oneness. Um, Mary Cassian in a book, World, um, Girls Gone Wise in a World Gone Wild, has a chapter on that that I think is phenomenal, and I have a handout I give on that. And the oneness, the commitment, the things that, that shadow the Godhead that are shadows that we are portraying in our intimacy. But in the McCluskey book, he talks about the fact that um, if your life throughout the day is communicating something differently than your sexual relationship, then your sexual relationship is a lie, and it will feel that way. And that's why if we're not solving problems, um, and then you're having sex at night, and you say it's not all that, that's right. Because your body is saying physically what you've been living throughout the day, my life for yours. When you've been living that throughout the day, you're just basically saying amen with your bodies. But when you're not living that way, but you're trying to say that with your bodies, all kinds of issues come to that, and then and we can work through that. But that, that's one book that has been helpful to me. All right. Um, in the last um, six minutes, give me five responses that you've been encouraged by this weekend. I didn't have time for questions. So um, praises, encouragements, what are you thankful for? A reminder that was helpful to you this week. So what has been helpful to you? Okay, so five responses. Let's go. Yes. Shame did not exist in Eden. There was nothing between them and God. There was no point, there was no darkness in the soul that I needed to cover. Okay, very good. That was number one. What's number two? Okay, yes. I like that you simplified life down to it's either my life to me or my life to you. Yeah, and remember, I didn't make those quotes up, so give them the appropriate, um, the appropriate kudos to whoever made them up. So, the choreography of heaven embedded in the universe is my life for yours. Is that the way you're living at home for your children, for your spouse, for your church? That brings life. That brings life. The principle of hell is my life for me. My will be done. Okay, that's number two. Number three. What else? What else? Okay. You guys going to get out on time? Number three. Number three. 
Yeah, no, no, no. Didn't you already answer? No, you didn't. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Number four. Okay. Yes. Seeking to please my spouse is not the same as loving them unconditionally. Okay. Very good. Very good. And number five. Last one. Yes. How do you feel about the five love? Because loving the people who are with them sometimes I'm struggling with them too. Yeah. Doesn't that give hope? It's like, because otherwise, I don't know how to stop feeling this way. But if I understand where it's coming from, it actually gives me hope because I know what to do. Yeah, I love that. Are you an engineer? No. Okay. I was wondering because you like the flow charts. Um, <laughs> there's actually an artistic version. This, the diagram says nothing else other than um, we have all kinds of fruits, anxiety, despair, sin, and it comes from a root. So our job is to get to the root and the heart worship. So um, there's an artistic diagram where that, and this diagram is also at faithlafayette.org slash heart free of, free of charge. So you can get that there as well. I thank you. Um, you want to pray for us? All right. Yeah, let's take a moment to pray. God, we thank you for... Uh, thank you for everything that we got to hear these past few hours, last night, this morning. Uh, thank you for your mercy and, and allowing us to, to be here and to, uh, to have your word in front of us and explain to us. Uh, and God, we pray that uh, as, it's, uh, as it's hit our ears and hit our hearts, that it would not, uh, not be something that we would easily forget as we go away from here. It would be something that uh, continues to take root and will uh, change our heart so that we'll bear, bear different and better fruit in our marriages. Uh, it'll be something that doesn't just stay with us, but something that we will pass on to other couples, uh, to couples that we know in our churches, uh, couples that we're raising, future couples that we're raising in our homes. And we, we pray that you would be glorified. The gospel will continue to be preached through marriages uh, that follow the pattern that you set up in Eden. We pray for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.